association or distance that we allow between us and Jesus that falls short of this encounter, this life-changing experience that he meant it to be. The material theme has been running through this gospel ever since we began it and we've been working through it. I understand slowly, but we are moving forward. And the next couple of messages are covering greater swaths of uh, of scripture. And we're going to be skipping over a couple of sections here and there and stuff just to kind of make sure that we're staying on track and, 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 and that we have bigger chunks to cover. But we've been moving through this seeing that the material world or us seeing, I've, I've tried to get us to picture almost like a bubble. Like we're stuck in this material kind of uh, dome, if you will, that everything that we've been born into, as we heard Madison pray earlier, we were born into sin. We were born into the experiences all we've known until the spirit comes and says, there's more to this. There's there's a life that that exists eternally outside of the physical realm, that which you can see and touch. Nicodemus struggled with this. We saw in John chapter three, where he was a faithful religious man. He was doing the law and he was doing it well. He saw the answer to his spiritual heartache or the fulfillment of that hole in his heart was through his efforts and his righteousness and his goodness for Jesus to come along and say, that's not going to cut it. That falls short. It doesn't birth you into the spiritual kingdom by the things that you do in the physical. We met the woman at the well, the one who had seen that the, the, or at least imagined that the answer to her physical longing and the, the problem that she was having in her heart was to, to find the next man and to start that relationship over. And she had been married time after time after time to where Jesus said, you've been married so many times and the one that you're with isn't even your husband. There was this serial pursuit of something in the physical world that she thought would get to the place that her heart was aching for and yet. She had to come to terms with the fact that only a birth in the spiritual through Jesus Christ himself was going to be the answer to her issue. And now we see it playing out in this gigantic crowd that's following Jesus. And they're there for the words. They're there for the things that he's claiming to be. They're looking for. Remember, we said there's a temperature going on now that they're they're looking for a Messiah. It's making the headlines of the of uh, uh, Jerusalem today. And they're just going, OK, so Messiah is supposed to be coming. Who is he? What's he going to look like? What's he going to do? And they're pulling their memory out and they're looking at old scriptures and they're saying, we think we can connect the dots. And so these false messiahs would walk into those predictions and say, it's me, it's, it's my time, it's my turn. And then they would manipulate and they would maneuver, they'd campaign and they would fail time and time again. So the Jewish peoples, their hearts were hungry. Their eyes were constantly seeking for when's our real Messiah going to come. So Jesus comes and he says, what you've been looking for is completely upside down. You, you are looking for a solution in this physical world that can give you tangible results for the things that you think you need, like political success and the identity of your nation and all these kinds of things. And you're performing it through physical acts of religion and sacrifice and, and, and doing better than your neighbor and letting them know you're doing better and all of these things. You've got it backwards and upside down. So Jesus then distrib- or, uh, 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 says the things, these heavy statements that we just heard read for us out of John 6, indicating that there's so much more to be had in this life of Christ. So the question for us as we approach this text is, will you and I settle 
Will we stop short? Will we miss the mark because of the endless pursuit of the life that can only be seen and touched? Or will we finally live a life in the eternal, even beginning here and now? The question is, when do you think people regret pursuing a life of the material? We have the the famous figures in our mind. We know the people that have touched physical greatness that we think are, you know, the the uh, the the pinnacle of the human experience only to then admit that it left them lacking. Those those things are fresh in our mind. Uh, Kent Hughes, the commentary and, and pastor, shares a story that I'm going to read for you here from Robin Mom. And Robin is the nephew of one of the great authors of the 1930s in particular. W. Somerset Mom was at the height of success and he had wrote, uh, written um, many instant classics. His novel of human bondage was uh, just shot to the, the bestseller list, if there even was such a thing back then, probably not. His play, The Constant Wife, all of these things became instant classics and Mom had more money than he knew what to do with. His nephew writes about his uncle this. He says, I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and ob- objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remember that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth $600,000. It only cost him 7000 Willie had 11 servants, including his cook, Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He died on, he dined on silver plates, wait, uh, waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henry, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me and I've come across the quotation. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a lot of bunk, but the thought is quite interesting all the same. That evening in the drawing room after dinner, Willie flung himself down on the sofa. Oh, Robin, I'm so tired. He gave a gulp and buried his head in his hands. I've been a failure the whole way through my life, he said. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. I tried to comfort him, Robin said. You're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. I wish I'd never written a single word, he answered. It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure and now it's too late to change. It's too late. Willie looked up and his grip tightened on my hands. He was staring towards the floor. His face was contorted with fear and he was trembling violently. Willie's face was ashen as he stared in horror ahead of him. Suddenly he began to shriek. Go away. He cried. I'm not ready. I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead. I tell you. His high pitched terror struck voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked round. But the room was empty as before. There's no one there, Willie. Willie began to gasp hysterically. This is no doubt an experience that we expect of the rich and famous. We can look at them from a distance and say, well, what do you expect? You've given your life to the material. We all know it doesn't bring comfort and peace. 
But is it just a condemnation on the wealthy or on the famous? Do we not also give our lives pursuing things that will also burn up one day or not have any lasting value? Let's do a little bit of review in our text here in John chapter 6 because it is such a big chapter and so much has been going on. You'll recall from verse 15 that Jesus was perceiving then that they were about to, t- to, to come and take him by force to make him king. So he withdrew himself to the mountain by himself. And so Jesus knew the crowd was pressing in and they wanted to make him their political savior. So he says, let's get out of here. They're twisting the message and they're using it for their selfish purposes. A little bit later on, we know that after he had sent the disciples away in a boat, he said, I'll catch up with you later. They waited for him and then it was time to go and he still wasn't there. And so the disciples, many of them experienced boatsmen, fishermen. They were out there and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. In verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. A little bit later on, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They're starting to pay attention. How did he travel? Where is Jesus? Okay, the disciples are there, but where's Jesus? Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, how did you get here? When did you come? We saw your disciples leave and you weren't with them for sure. And there were no other boats. How did you get here? What Jesus doesn't say next is really important for us to hear, if I can say it that way. Jesus doesn't say, well, an interesting thing happened, or you missed the show. Guess what else I did? Because Jesus would rather lose the election because they were going to make him king than lose the heart of the sinner. It's very, very important to Jesus that they hear the true message that he's brought to them, not the one they want to hear. And the crowds are pursuing Jesus despite his dismissal of them. He's sending them away and he's retreating to get some space for him and his disciples. And they, they keep pressing in. They, they chase him even by jumping in boats themselves and moving across the lake. We need to ask, what if finding the real satisfaction of our souls is beyond the world that we can see and touch? If it is, would it be worth the pursuit of this seemingly distant promise? These are very sober uh, times that, that Jesus is engaged in and that the, the crowd is following in and yet they're just caught up in the frenzy of all the cool that he can do. So Jesus is going to tell them, it's time for you to work for what can't be earned. How strange is that, right? So let's pick up our main part of our text in verse 26, where Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God, the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you don't work. 
Instead, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I think we should take note of the fact that there's no heavenly points for the amount of their sincerity. They've, they've walked away from their daily routines. They've been following Jesus for days. When he seems to escape them, they're like, ah, oh, there's got to be a boat around, right? Let's keep going. All right, Henry, you, you paddle in the back and Schmedley, you take it up front and everything. We're going to get there. We're going to see what Jesus is going to do next. They're a very sincere crowd. No lack of effort on their part. Jesus even says, you're seeking me. We would stop right there and say, it's working. This, this whole thing about trying to rebuild a church in 2021, don't think that that thought hasn't occurred in my mind. How do we get a crowd back? Because if they're seeking me, they must be hearing the right message. But the problem is their hunger for the miracle, as Jesus indicated already, was their drive. You're, you're seeking me not because you saw that I'm powerful enough to do the signs and these signs are pointing to the fact that I am the son of God whom I claim to be. Instead, you're coming because it was pretty cool that that happened and you're wondering what I can do next. But the paycheck can't be earned. He said, this thing that you're going after, it's going to be a gift from the son of man. He says it right there in verse 27. He says, the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite term for himself. We would wonder why didn't he call himself Messiah? But as you see what they were going to do as he did Messiah-like things, they wanted to make him a political king. So he said, I'm not going to call myself that because that's just a loaded phrase as far as they're concerned. I'm the son of man. I am the, the, the greatest of all men, but I'm also the one who's most sacrificial. I'm the one that God the Father is sending to do what they can't and do it for them. So Jesus says, the son of man will give you what you really want and need. You see, in answer to the question, what can I do to earn favor with God? The gospel always points to the work that Jesus already did. And even we're going to see in this text that Jesus is talking about what he's about to do with his flesh and blood. This is how the gospel handles that question of how are we supposed to get favor with God? Well, look to Jesus. He's the one that earned your favor. And if we're being honest, the work that Jesus is commanding them to do because they asked the question isn't really work, is it? He used the word believe. He says the thing that you're going for perishes. It has an expiration date. It has a shelf life. Go for that which endures to eternal life. But Jesus had just gotten on saying these things to this crowd back before they jumped in boats. He says in Matthew, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also Jesus saying work quote unquote for that which can't be earned. So what is work in quotes? It's belief, which of course is what they were struggling with. Not sure if any of you can relate to that. Belief sounds like a simple concept, isn't it? You just kind of acknowledge that something's true and therefore I'm one of the believers. But what we see with what Jesus is going to say is that belief is a little bit deeper than just mental assent. I think something is true, therefore it must be. We have to work for what can't be earned. Jesus is also telling them to keep their appetites in check, the thing that they crave, to take inventory of that. 
Now, we could have some very common confusion. We say this a lot. We hear this a lot. Well, shouldn't I be craving more of God? The worship music is telling me, I just want more of you, Jesus. Or the preacher on the radio is saying, you just need to hunger and thirst for more God. And we say, that sounds like a great thing. And I would say it is. We're supposed to crave more of Jesus. But the problem is, is when we stop short of the definition of what aspects of Jesus or the abilities of Jesus are we craving. I would think that this crowd had a lot of sincerity and drive to, to be in the audience of Jesus. But yet he still says you're not here for the right reasons. A terrible marketing strategy, by the way, on Jesus part. It's not going to grow the crowds anytime soon if he's chasing them away and offending them. He had an opportunity to draw them in further. And we're going to see he keeps missing those opportunities and intentionally neglecting doing the thing that our ears would rather hear. He continues in verses 30 and 31. They said to them, they said to him, actually, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Now, take my word for it. We're going to look at it. This is an extremely wicked question. What sign do you do? What work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers, hint, hint, wink, wink, Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Did we mention how much we liked your bread? As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're, they're putting on display for us what you and I know to be true from our own experience, both in our lives and those that we are around, is that sinful hearts are never satisfied. What do we say? If I just have this, then I'll be good. Somebody leans on you. If you just give me this, I'll leave you alone. I'll never ask for another thing. Parents. <laughs> What they're saying is, Jesus, you did this. Yes, it was amazing. It was powerful. It caused us to get across the water and see what else you can do. You did it for one day, though. You know what Moses did? Moses did it for 12,480 days. So what you got? Moses uh, told the people, there's going to be bread tomorrow mornings littered all over the, the ground, if you will. And you're going to scoop it up. It's only going to last for today because we'll get more tomorrow from the hand of God. Six days a week, this kept happening for the children of Israel. And Moses said, just look out your tent. It's going to look like frost on the grass and everything. You're going to scoop it up. You can do all kinds of things with it. Make it manna souffle or banana bread, if any of you know the old Keith Green song. All those kinds of things. You know, you can just make whatever you want, but you've only got one day with it. You've got to start fresh tomorrow. So you're like, Moses really knocked it out of the park. You just did this once. It was cool and all. But it was only once. What is that displaying for us? It's displaying what Proverbs 27, 20 says. Just as death and destruction are never satisfied, so human desire is never satisfied. That's the unfortunate aspect of fueling our appetites is that as we feed it and feed it, the hungrier it grows. They said, why don't you do something else so that we may see and believe? But is that reality is that really what happens the more we see the more we believe don't we say lord if you just kind of rip the clouds open and you start writing with that hand on the wall like you did in the old testament or you start speaking audibly or shaking the mountains and sending you know uh, earthquakes and lightning and thunder and all these things then my friends or my family they'll believe in you and they won't think i've joined some stupid cult just do this for me and prove your existence so they'd stop doubting but is that what really happens 
In Mark 15, the scripture says, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They're saying this at the foot of the cross, and they're saying if he just got himself down there, we'd be in. But didn't he? Well, I mean, it, it, some time transpired, and then he was in a, a tomb, and we don't know if the guards are really watching. We don't know if somebody came and stole the body and everything. So you never really know, right? We explain it away. We explain the quote-unquote proof that he gives because we have to reconcile it with our, desi- our, our lack of desire to surrender to a God. MacArthur says, unbelief is never satisfied, no matter how much evidence is given. Now, please don't understand that what I'm getting at is that we shouldn't have an argument for what the scripture says is true. That if somebody comes to you and says, I'm just looking for more evidence that God is real and everything that you just say, well, you'll never find all all the evidence. They might find some. God is faithful to answer our questions. He tolerates our ponderings and our queries and stuff. And he's faithful to reveal himself. Uh, Some have said that he'll go down any road that you're down in order to find you and save you. We need to be prayerfully patient with that and willing and knowledgeable of what the truth of the scripture says. But the reality is at some point, it always hits this place of faith. I've said it the last couple of weeks. You won't have all your questions answered. At some point, we have to surrender to God is bigger than I can comprehend. If he's going to be real God, then I shouldn't be able to comprehend everything he can do. And it becomes a matter of faith. But they say, if you just prove it, then probably we'll believe. But the true giver knows what we need. This is why Jesus said to them, verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is exposing the fact that they've missed the point of the man. And this is what they're going to do all the time. And a couple thousand years later, it's what we do. Jesus sends a sign. He paints a picture. He explains it in metaphor. And it just kind of goes over our heads so many times. That's why the Bible says that, that, that we need the spirit to illuminate the truth of God. Those things are spiritually discerned. Our, our human eyes and ears can't make sense of all of these things. So yes, it's easy to pick on them and say, what a bunch of idiots, they missed what Jesus was trying to do. But we can say that because it's in hindsight. They misunderstood what was going on in the picture of the manna and God's provision. They even said that it came from Moses, but Jesus says he's only giving the instructions, unzip your tent and look outside and gather it up. He gave them the warnings of the fact that it wouldn't be there um, beyond what you gather isn't going to be there beyond the day and everything. So Moses is the vessel. Moses goes to God and says, the people are complaining and are hungry. And God says, step aside. I'll do something about it. But yet they want to credit Moses because they need a figure to follow. They need somebody to idolize. They need somebody to elevate because that's what's in the heart of man. Verse 47 Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You know what? That bread that your fathers ate, that manna in the wilderness, they still died. It sustained life for the day. It wasn't eternal. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
It wasn't from Moses. It wasn't that at the time the manna wasn't the true bread from heaven. He says, no, my father now gives the current bread from heaven. That's what's going on in the original language. It's separating that this isn't a continuation of that manna. That manna that was given back in Exodus uh, 16 was was a, a precursor or a picture of what God was capable of doing in his son, Jesus Christ. My father now gives to you bread from heaven. That bread, that manna wasn't real life. It wasn't sustaining real life. They still died. It only sustained physical life. And it wasn't for everyone. God had been saying that my message, my hope, my gospel would be for all four corners of the world. And yet this manna just provided the needs for the children of Israel in an extremely tough time in their exodus. So Jesus says, no, the true bread is one that will give life to the entire world but it's my flesh. You see what Jesus is doing here with each miracle, with each conversation, with each demonstration of his Messiahship is he's establishing himself as the better Moses. They elevated Moses so much and they needed to respect him and appreciate all that he did as being a faithful servant from God. But they looked at him like, don't mess with my Moses. And Jesus is like, he was just a vessel vessel. He could come to the edge of the Red Sea and say, oh, God, help me out here. So God says, whoosh, we'll open the Red Sea. Okay, folks, walk through on dry land. Or, or, or Moses went and said, Lord, they're, they're hungry and they're complaining. I don't know what to do with all these whiners. He said, tell them they'll find bread when they wake up and they'll have meat in the evenings. It'll be there. Or, Jesus, or Moses would come to God and say, you know, they're, they're carrying all these heavy sins and I don't know how to, how to get their forgiveness. Will you please hear the cry as I represent the people? Will you hear the cry of your people and forgive their sins? See, Jesus comes along and says, I can, I can walk on the water. I can have power over the created elements that only Moses could beg God to manipulate. I am the true bread that sustains life forever. Not just the daily stuff that spoils by the end of the evening. And I am the great high priest. I have come to deal with the sins between the people and a holy, righteous father. And I've carried them on me and my sacrifice is making it possible for the father to forgive them. A once and for all forgiveness for their sins. So Jesus is telling this crowd, you need to keep your appetite in check. You're hungering for things, but missing the mark entirely. And the last point I'd like to make as we move towards wrapping this up is that we don't want to be a Jesus sampler. It's a terrible word for what I'm trying to communicate, but it's something that we've seen all too often uh, as we've tried to uh, walk through this Christian life, as we've tried to study the Bible, as we've tried to be in church, and everything, you, you get the sense that there are many who would say, if I could just nibble a little bit of what Jesus is talking about, if I could just get a little bit of religion in my life, or if I can get some church going, then I'll, I'll probably feel better about myself, and I'll have a better outlook on my life, and it'll start to balance the whole thing out, almost like it's a, a piece of the entire pie of my life. And, and Jesus isn't leaving any room for that, is he? He's not wanting to be sampled like he's one option on the plate. No, he says to them in verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood as eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true f uh, food and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. See, Jesus again had an opportunity because because they're in a synagogue setting. That's what our a later verse tells us is that crowd had moved from the outside to the inside. And in a synagogue setting, it's not like where you guys are all being quiet and respectable and listening and getting a few extra Z's and everything, which I totally get. Um, you know, it's it's not that kind of it's a little bit more of a back and forth or a dialogue. Someone throws out something controversial like, hey, hey, wait a second. Go back and explain that. What are you talking about? It's it's a little bit more interactive and engaging. And I'm not encouraging that, please. <laughs> I don't know if I could handle it. So when Jesus says, uh, you guys are, you're only after me because, um, uh, you know, you want to see the miracle and they go, oh, be a little confrontational. And then he says, um, yeah, you thought Moses provided all that, but he was just a human vessel. God really did all the work. He's like, ah, now you're starting to pick a fight on our, on our Moses. It's getting a little bit heated. Jesus could then say, oh, you're misunderstanding me. What I, what I meant to say was, no. He says, okay, third level that's going to really flip you guys out is you need to become cannibals. That's what they're hearing. And, and Levitical law is popping off in their head. They're going back to Leviticus 17. They're like, no, 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 no. If you claim to be the son of God, you would know. He said, we don't eat the blood of animals. That's where the life is and all this sort of stuff. And they're, they're hearing warnings like, what is he talking about? They're so literal, even though he's been talking in so many figurative terms and trying to display the bigger picture. What they hear him saying is, you've got to become cannibalistic if you're going to follow me. They're like, okay, this Messiah complex has really gone off the deep end here. What's going on? The point that Jesus is trying to make or is making, I should say, but what they're not hearing is that true food is meant to be consumed. If he is the bread of life. Then nibbling on it, sampling on it or something like that, or just smelling the aroma or taking a picture of it and showing your friends and everything is not what the food was intended for. It was meant to be consumed. Ingest it, take it in, get the flesh in there, get the blood in there, because Jesus gave all of himself for us. We have Jesus' very words in print and preservation for us for thousands of years. We have the demonstration of his actions and the life that he lives. So he models for us how we're supposed to do this. But he also, different from every other religion, different from every other God figure that we see going on in other religions and stuff, the reason why Christianity isn't just like everyone else is because we have a sacrificial God who laid his life down for the sins of those that would call him Father and call him Lord, and he moved into their hearts. He takes up residence in us. Jesus not only gives us his words and his actions, but he gives us himself. The person of Jesus becomes personal to us. He said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. True life is in his flesh and blood. Not in ours, not, not in the religion that we can do, not in the faithfulness that we can provide. Now, just very quickly here, <clears throat> I want to just mention something because there's a lot of um, phrases and <clears throat> things that you will hear if you were raised in a tradition that taught what's called transubstantiation, which means that the communion elements, the bread and the wine or the juice after the priest's blessing literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You see a passage like this and on the on the surface, you might think, oh, maybe that's where. 
they got that and maybe there's some truth to that. But there's a lot of just kind of looking at it, not just on the surface, below the surface, but there's a lot of plain approach to this that we can say. This wasn't Jesus talking about the communion elements that we would refer to as transubstantiation, that this is becoming the literal body and blood of Jesus. Not only do we have the Levitical law that those guys were freaking out about hearing from chapter 17 about, about that, that God says, don't eat uh, the blood and all these kinds of things. But why would, just from a logic standpoint, why would Jesus be instituting communion with those that were hostile to him? The very nature of communion, which we see him sharing with his closest friends and disciples around a table, is an act of fellowship and community and common ground, which they clearly don't have with him at this point. And it's also clear from his other language, just a common reading of it, that he's not being literal. He's been using metaphor and example with other people all along the way. And also, I think the probably the most uh, revealing aspect of why we're not talking about the communion aspect and Jesus literally becoming something so, which would make us, in a sense, cannibalistic is because he's saying that it's essential for eternal life. He said, until you do this, you are not in me and I am not in you. And then we'd have some some consistency problems with others that were in the faith from the Old Testament that never got that opportunity to the thief on the cross who died that day and was with Jesus in paradise based on his promise, never got to have that, if you will, communion experience. And many others, some of some that you've encountered that have given their life to Christ and they didn't have a chance to do anything that looked even remotely religious before they passed. So that's among many other reasons that we don't have time to get into. I think that's clearly why this uh, passage has been taken out of context and, and used, unfortunately, to bolster a religious practice that doesn't get us to the meaning of what it was there for. Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He says, this is where eternal life is. And he says, and if you have that eternal life, I will raise you up on the last day. This is the difference between religion and the relationship and the the forgiveness that we find in Jesus is that eternal life isn't just some distant thing. Like once we get to heaven, then eternal life begins. Eternal life, we said, is, is that, that zoe, is that, that quality of life that God gives in the here and now. He's blossoming it. He's growing it. He gives us the practical experience of being in the kingdom while still living in this earthly kingdom. And it prepares us for an eternity before him. And so therefore, he says, true life is intermingled with Christ. We abide in each other when we're in him. Let's just look for just a second here at why the food metaphor is so powerful and relatable to us. I thought John MacArthur did a great job breaking this down, and I just want to share it with you here. Really simple stuff. We know that food is useless until eaten, right? It doesn't do us any good until we internalize it. We know that our our food, our enjoyment and practicality of it is prompted by hunger. There's something in our body and our mechanism, the way the Lord created us to desire it. So it's not just something, oh, we have to in order to stay going. We want it. 
The problem is, is that we have replaced in that metaphor, we've replaced that healthier appetite with a, a desire for sin and we feed on that. And it keeps making us hungrier and hungrier and we can't fill up on it enough. Leaves no room for an appetite for the things of God. That's why when we say in our Christian walk, you have to walk away from some of those things that are destructive in order to start craving the things of the spirit. You have to make some commitments to give those things up so the spirit can move in because we keep filling up too quick. Before he moves in and we get hungry again and he says, I have a real meal for you, but you keep filling up on that other stuff. Food becomes absorbed into the body's system. It's not enough, as we've said, to just respect Jesus, but we internalize him. That's why we make him our personal Lord and Savior. But eating food also involves trust. Now, some of you might be great cooks in your family. Some of you, those that eat what you make are exercising incredible faith. I've been saying it for weeks. I've been saying, look, we all exercise faith in the, in the daily routines of our lives and we don't even think about food, right? You, you're exercising faith every drive through you drive through. You don't know what's going on on the other side of that window. Even you can see what you're about to eat and you're going, I'm having faith that this is actually nourishment. We exercise trust all the time and we make it sound like, oh, that's silly to ask people to trust in a God you can't see. But yet I can be in blind faith and drive through the, go through the drive through and thinking that that worker didn't drop it on the floor. Didn't mean something worse because they saw me coming through and they hate my guts. Any of those kinds of things. I have perfect faith and I enjoy it and I'm like, oh, that's great. The only negative experience I have is the guilt afterwards. Eating food involves trust, but it's personal. I can't eat for somebody else. And oh, don't we want to. You you have that person that you know needs to be here, hearing this right now, and you're thinking about them. Why aren't they why aren't they eating this for themselves? Or or why did they walk away from the faith? Or how come they keep going like this every time I talk to them about the things of Jesus and we want to eat for them? But it needs to be a personal consumption that God has intended for us. And the more that we do, those others will see it in us and see it having its impact. That's why we can't just be a Jesus sampler. So how is all of this relevant? Today we are, I'm going to say the most obvious statement. That the confusion and fear of the day is running rampant. Every week we're being presented with a new challenge. How do I make sense of this? Which side do I listen to? What does it mean for my career? What does it mean for my family? What does it mean for my income? All of these kinds of things. The effects of the physical world are staring us in the face and they're screaming in our ear. They're keeping us up at night in so many instances. So how does this truth help us when we're going through those things? I'm a firm believer that if we feed on the kingdom of God more than the, 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 the temporary consumption of the physical kingdom, the less impact, the less fear, the less anxiety that we have when we see this earthly kingdom falling apart. We start to trust in a grand plan. We start to see that this was being predicted all along. It's, it's coming through more specifically than anybody could have known. But we're not supposed to have control of this thing. We're not supposed to know what our tomorrow looks like. That's never been promised to us. 
So why is it that so often the news of the day or the pressures of the day freak me out? It's because I'm not consuming from a kingdom as often as I should that is bigger and more in control than everything I can see and touch. That's why the church makes things available because we know what it's like for you Monday through Saturday. You're, you're fighting these battles seemingly alone. You're out there in a world and you're facing hostility. You don't know where the truth of Jesus is going to show up, if he's going to rescue you from this stuff and everything. And so we throw out opportunities for you to just kind of make, make a, a, a reminder to yourself that this physical kingdom isn't all that there is and it doesn't rule your hope. So when, when uh, Laura comes up and talks about a women's retreat, one of our first places should go, ladies, is just, I think I need that. Why? Because I'm doing battle with a world that's trying to make it sound like it's all there is. Or when we offer connect groups or a men's retreat or even just coming to church on Sundays and being around, we're, we're investing in a kingdom that is eternal, even though we're feeling the effects of it in the physical. You see, the life of Jesus, the life that Jesus offers can't be earned. It can't be overconsumed. It never runs out. And it can't be nibbled on. It can't be sampled. It was meant to be ingested entirely to transform our life from the inside out. And that's the hope that we have as we hear the words of Jesus. I hope that you took some notes as you came in. I have some further steps as far as application and what to do next and those sorts of things. I know not all of you are note takers, but as I'm preparing those, sometimes other ideas or thoughts come to me and um, it might be something that you could do or think about throughout the week. So make plans in the coming weeks, maybe to grab those notes. But for now, what I'm going to ask you to do is stand. Let's pray, close out our time and ask the worship team to to usher us out in song. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you do. I thank you for the faithfulness and reliability of your word. And uh, Lord, it's relevance. And, and I pray it's revel- relevance to the people here, but I know, Lord, how it's, it's changed my perspective this week and ca- caused me to um, be humble before you in ways that my pride and my fear were, were creeping up. So I thank you, Lord, for your peace that you give us that passes all understanding. And I pray the same for these great and faithful people. I pray that you would send them out into the darkness, uh, not just charged up emotionally, Lord, but equipped spiritually because of the truth of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for your great love and faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.